Can we give the Lord another hand this morning? Thank him for his mercy and his grace. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Ralph Lowe. I'm lead pastor here at Legacy Church, and I'm so tickled you're here. I, I tell you, I can't imagine doing life without you. There's just something about the family of God that's, you know, I've, I've, I've said, you know, they say blood is thicker than water, but the spirit is even thicker than blood, isn't it? It's amazing the brotherhood of the faith that we have. And I, and I love the fact that Paula called you guests. You're not visitors. You're our guests today. You're more than a visitor, and we're just tickled you're here. We think you found the best church on Elm and Meridian Road you'll ever find. It's unsurpassed. <clears throat> well, bless you. What I'm really excited about is Jesus is here. We can't do life without him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And if you haven't discovered that yet, that's okay. I didn't know that at one time in my life. In fact, everyone here didn't know that at one time. That great discovery changes everything, changes your trajectory, changes your life, changes your worldview, your outlook, your future, your destiny. He is a destiny changer. This morning, what I feel on my heart is a message that I believe and I know every human being can relate to. I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Daniel 3. The Bible has a lot of famous 316 verses. We're beginning, we're continuing on a part two message of uncommon double-fisted faith. Double-fisted faith is the kind of faith that's uncommon, and we're going to describe what that is right here as we talk about the three Hebrew children. If you haven't heard about this story, it took place uh, many, many years ago. Uh, in the Middle East, in the nation of Babylon. And these three Hebrew boys had been captured and hauled off to work for the king in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And we find, uh, beginning in Daniel 3.16, this story of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were confronted with a situation where the king had been talked into raising up a statue for himself, an idol, and he asked everybody in his nation to show obeisance to him and his statue and that they were to bow to this idol in honor of Nebuchadnezzar. And these three boys would only bow to Jesus Christ, the Lord our God. They didn't know him by Jesus, but they would only stand for God. And he threatened them with death. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else. And it says right here, this is the first fist of faith. A believing that God will deliver us, a believing that God will help us, that he's for us, he's not against us, for his thoughts are good, and not for evil, but for a future and a hope, and a faith that believes God's going to deliver us out of our situation. We must have that fist of faith. You've got to know that God's ear is not deaf, nor is his hand shriveled like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and he can't reach you. 
Bible says his hand is not short. He can reach into your life. And that first fist of faith believes God will reach and change and alter your future. But they go on and say the double-fisted part of this, that no matter what you cook up, king, we believe God could deliver us from it. But even if God doesn't, and here's the second part of faith, even if the situation doesn't turn out like I want it to, like I hope it does, like I'm praying for it to, that doesn't mean God's not answering in his own way. But even if God doesn't do what I want him to do and how I want him to do it, O oh king, it wouldn't make a bit of difference to us because we still wouldn't serve anything but him. That's double-fisted, and that's very uncommon, but it's what God wants all of us to have because it brings us a peace that passes all understanding. There is nothing this world or humans or anybody, the government, uh, the economy can throw at us that we don't have a double-fisted faith about. And if he doesn't go down with the left hook, you knock him down with the big roundhouse right, you know? Well, let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to do exceedingly abundantly further than you could ever ask or think that your eye has not seen nor your ear heard or your mind imagined what God could do for you today. Heavenly Father, we're praying knowing you are an almighty, powerful, miraculous God. And that, Father, this message is going to reach into every heart that's open to you today, that as you knock on the door of their heart, Father, that we will heed the knock and will open up our lives to hear what you want to say to us today as individuals. That not an individual will leave here today who hasn't leaned into you that won't be ministered to and blessed <laughs> and their destiny changed for you, Jesus, and for them. Bless them in Jesus' name. Bless your word. Amen and amen. Well, this was in the Old Testament of your Bible, this story. In the New Testament, we find that Jesus comes onto the scene. He dies a horrific death for us. And then he raises from the dead, witnessed by over 500. And then the disciples began to grow in Jerusalem. The believers began to grow and grow. More and more believers become a part of this. And there was a Greek boy by the name of Stephen who became one of the original servants in the house of the Lord. He began to help feed the widows and the orphans in the church. And he volunteered for that. And the Bible says he was full of the Holy Spirit. And he began to do miracles just from that servant's place, you know. A waiter to widows began to speak the wisdom of God, the word of God, and the Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, the religious community didn't like what he was saying or standing for because he was like these three Hebrew boys. There was no other God but Jesus, no other way but Christ. And he began to preach in an amazing way. They tried to argue against him, even their scholars, and he argued him down every time, not in a mean way, but he just was so wise, the Bible says, they couldn't counter what he said about Jesus. And finally, in frustration, their only resolve was to kill him. And we find in Acts chapter 7, if you want to turn there, this story. At that point, they went wild, a rioting mob of catcalls and whistles and invective. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, hardly noticed he only had eyes for God. It didn't matter how loud his thoughts were, huh, Sophia? He heard Jesus. He didn't matter how loud everybody else was. He thought about God. What a beautiful imagery that 
uh, Sophia shared with us today about the loudness of our own thoughts. His thoughts, their thoughts were not in his way. He only had eyes and thoughts for God. Now, this was through the Holy Spirit. No human could do this on their own. It's the miracle of asking God's Spirit into us. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, says he saw Jesus in all his glory. He saw God in all his glory with Jesus standing at his side. Can you say standing at his side with me? Next verse. He said, oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man, what? Standing at God's side. At this point, that didn't make him very happy. Yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of town and began to pelt him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man by the name of Saul to watch them. And how many of you know who Saul is in this story? Saul becomes one of the greatest evangelists for Jesus Christ of all times. But this is where Saul comes into the picture. A man who's willing to hold the coat as others kill another man, murder him with stones. And a young man by the name of Saul began to watch them. And as the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. This is double-fisted faith, isn't it? God's not seeming to be in the picture for Stephen in a sense. And yet Stephen sees God in the picture. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus has not left him nor forsaken him. And he's talking to Jesus directly as he's being stoned to death. Then he knelt down. I believe he fell down. I believe they knocked him down at that point. Praying loud enough for everyone to hear in the midst of his pain and agony, he cries out, Master Jesus, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. Then he died. Saul was right there congratulating the killers. An amazing story. And it brings us to the title of our message today, When the King Stands Up. You see, many times in the Bible we talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. That the priest Jesus is no longer working sacrificially to kill bulls and he's resting. He's seated as the once and for all sacrifice for all humanity. He doesn't have to keep working. He's seated. He's the high priest that now is finished and completed his work. On the cross, he says, my work is finished. It is completed. So he can rest now throughout history in the sense of sacrificing for sin. It's a one and done. And we're saved through the sacrifice of Jesus. So the imagery of a high priest sitting when the world sins is, was unheard of because they had to work so hard to kill all the goats and sheep and bulls for the sins of the world. But Jesus died for the entire sins of the world. And so the picture of him as a high priest is seated. He's no longer having to work and strive because he did it. He completed the work. But this imagery is all of a sudden different. Something is taking place that has caused Jesus to stand up. When double-fisted faith is evidenced on the earth, when you exhibit it, it brings Jesus to his feet. He leans in. He doesn't leave you alone in the midst of your darkest trials. The enemy wants to tell you you're all alone. There's nobody around. Just like Stephen, surrounded by violence and no friendly faces in the crowd. And yet he wasn't alone. He knew Jesus was standing right beside him. Wow. 
That's double-fisted faith. When the king stands up. In 1742, a man by the name of, a composer by the name of George Frederick Handel, many of you have heard of him, a very famous composer, wrote a musical work called Messiah. This was a very unusual oratorio because most of the time they would have individual soloists singing about different characters in the Bible, but in this Messiah performance that took two and a half hours, about two hours and 15 minutes to perform, the individual singers only sang of the life of Jesus, the foretelling of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Two hours and 15 minutes of glorious honor to the life of the Messiah. But right smack dab towards the end, well, about two-thirds of the way through, maybe, of this oratorio, Handel had placed a chorus in part two of a part three orchestral composition, right as Jesus is being killed on the cross. Counterintuitive, as far as I'm concerned, you think that a great big chorus that came out would come at the end after Jesus has ascended, but Handel put it right at the end of part two as Christ has been crucified on the cross. And out breaks the most famous chorus, I believe, of all times. How many know the name of it? The Hallelujah Chorus. This famous portion of the composition out of two hours and 15 minutes lasts three minutes. Handel's choir and orchestra first performed it in Dublin, Ireland in 1741. A year later, that was his soft opening. A year later, he's performing the premier first-time performance of Messiah in London. The king is in the crowd above in the balcony observing the performance. Now remember, this is the first time the Londoners have ever heard this oratorio. When an hour and, gosh, what is it, an hour and a half into this performance, the choir and the orchestra get quiet, and all of a sudden, the chorus begins at the death of Christ. Hallelujah. 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 And it, that sounded just like that. The king stands up in the crowd. And they see from above he stood up and the entire crowd stood with him. For three minutes the crowd stood at attention as Handel proclaimed the greatness of God in the midst of death. The victorious Savior, even though it looked dark. This double-fisted faith chorus began to ring out for the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. 
And from 1742 on, every time this chorus is played, the crowd traditionally will stand. This many years later, the crowd is still, in a sense, obligated by tradition. Because a king stood once, they must stand. And when you're going through your darkest, deepest trial of death, of hardship, of the darkness of the soul, just know if you grab onto your faith with both hands and know Jesus has not forsaken you. Though things look dark and dismal and you're all alone, know that Jesus, the King, is standing and all of heaven stands with him. And you've got to know that when the kingdom stands, a spiritual people who have been given the Holy Spirit of God will stand with you. You will not stand alone in this house. The people of God and all the kingdom of heaven stand, the Bible says, when you lean into God and believe. This is the story of the Bible, that only God has the ability to truly give your life the greatest victory in the midst of your most darkest night. It is the theme of the Bible of redemption in the midst of your worst sin, in the worst disaster, in the worst season of loneliness or distraughtness or disgruntledness or discouragement. It's God alone who can stand in the midst of those days for you. There is no other who can do it. All other ground is sinking stand. But on Christ, the solid rock, you will stand in the midst of the storm if you heed the words of Christ, if you bring him into your life. Jesus says you're like a wise man. When the storm begins to beat against your life, it will stand. The three Hebrew children stand in the midst of the fire. And we find that they have double-fisted faith, then they get the first fist again and get what they ask for. And the Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar, as his big king, one of the greatest kings in history, is sitting there in judgment over these three Hebrew boys. All of a sudden, their double-fisted faith causes him to stand up. And the Bible says he leaps to his feet and rushes and says, were there not three... And yet I see the force standing with them as the Son of God. Jesus will stand with you in the midst of your fire. And it will cause the world to stand up, stand out, and stand firm in your faith for Jesus. When Stephen is overwhelmed and can no longer stand against the circumstances that surround him, it's Jesus who stands with him. So which child of God did Jesus save, the three Hebrew children or Stephen? Yes. Because Jesus welcomed the first Christian martyr into the greatest celebration heaven had had up until the time Jesus rose from the dead. You can imagine the camaraderie between Stephen and Jesus as they were the first two to die for Jesus, so to speak. Stephen would not want to come back and live this life the celebration was glorious. Stephen got the greatest standing ovation of all times up to that point, I believe. The three Hebrew children got an entire kingdom to stand up and take notice of Jesus. King Nebuchadnezzar says, truly, these three boys, God is God. And he elevated them to rule a province in Babylon because of their faith. The whole world stood up. And in reality, when Stephen stood up that day and was rocked to sleep, God redeemed that 
in his life, he received an amazing, amazing reward. But also what's amazing is the most violent, the most contentious man in the crowd, Saul, witnessed a man saying, Father, don't hold this sin against Paul. And a short three to five to ten years later, Paul himself was under a pile of rocks thought to be dead, and God brought him back to life with his double-fisted faith. He shook off the rocks, went back into town, and God says, and now you know how that feels. Yeah? And Paul, it was probably therapeutic for him when he got over the incredible pain of being stoned nearly to death to realize, God, that makes me feel like there's some redemption in my life that you would allow me to live through something I did to somebody else years ago. And Paul never wavered from his faith after Stephen rocked his world with those words of forgiveness and love. Stephen had a double-fisted faith. And then there's Jesus on the cross, the most vile and horrific way to die known to man. And in the midst of that, God raises him up to seat him at the right hand of the Father. And now he reigns. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ and of our Lord, and now he reigns forevermore. We're going to do something a little unusual today. I'm going to ask the band to come up already, if you would. Talk to Sophia. Typically, we just have our worship leader come up, but today, I feel like it's a special day. We're going to close on an anthem, our own Messiah, Hallelujah Chorus. But I want you to hear as God speaks and prays into your heart today. Jesus didn't just stand up on the day Stephen was stoned, but Jesus stood up nine times during his lifetime for people that were in the darkest moments of their life. There was a time a woman didn't know Jesus. She was caught in the very act of a very, very shameful sin. She was caught in the very act of adultery, drugged through town, barely wearing the sheet that came off her bed. Through a very prudish religious society, they didn't ever show any skin. And here this woman is thrown at the feet of Jesus in a test to get Jesus to trip up so they could kill Jesus. They threw this woman at his feet, knowing Jesus was a merciful Savior. And they said, our law, Moses' law, says that if anybody is caught in the very act, of, caught in the very act of adultery, then they must be stoned. And this woman is at the mercy of Christ. She's all alone. She's in desperation. She's guilty as sin. Naked. Terrified. So humiliated. And the Bible says Jesus stands to her defense and says, let him who is without sin over my dead body cast the first stone. And he blew back the condemnation around her life. And at that point, they began to leave one at a time. Jesus just eradicated her sin right there on the spot. And Jesus says, daughter, look around. Where are those who wanted to shame you? (laughs) 
They're gone, my Lord. Today, if you've ever sinned, if you've never met the Savior, you're at his feet today. And the enemy in the world wants you to feel ashamed and run as far from Jesus as you can run. But I'm going to tell you something. You can't outrun your Savior. He's here to shield you, to erase and eradicate your past, and to give you a new future and a hope, to clean you white as snow, and to put new garments of praise upon your nakedness, and to clean you of your wounds, and to forgive you of your sins. No one can stand to condemn you in the presence of your Jesus standing beside you. This morning, if you don't know this Jesus, pull all the faith out of your life and your body and grab him with both hands and believe in him who will make you white as snow and give you a new future and a hope. Your old things will pass away. All things will become new. You will become a new creation in Christ. He will throw your sins as far away as the east is from the west into the sea of forgetfulness to be remembered no more. Yes, Jesus is standing next to you today. Jesus stood up in the crowd and he said, if anybody is empty and thirsty, drink of me. I will satisfy your soul. And the Bible says he stood up that day and yelled that, if you're thirsty, come. If you're thirsty, come. If today your life is empty and numb, it just feels like blah, zero. You might be hungry and thirsting after so much more out of life. Jesus is standing up saying, drink of me. Drink of me. The day came when the disciples watched Jesus, their Savior, their hero, murdered on the cross. Out of sight, out of mind, gone. And three different times in the Gospels, it says they were in a room by themselves with the door locked. Twice it says, with the door locked. And these words, same words every time. And Jesus himself stood among them. Right in the middle of feeling like Jesus was dead and far away and their plans for their life were this or thus. So when you're confused, in doubt, in fear, spinning out of control. When you're lonely and in darkness and you're isolated, I want you to know something. Even if your door is locked, if you cry out, Jesus himself will stand with you. And he will be your peace. He will be your comfort. He will be your resolution, your confidence, your certainty. He will be ever-present in your life. The day came when Peter gave up. And he said, I quit. I'm going fishing. And there's days like that for all of us where you're discouraged, you're disillusioned, you're at a dead end. You might be in a dead end job, a dead end relationship, a dead end in your church. Maybe just in your faith, you feel like you've come to a place where Jesus has left and you're in the valley of discouragement. And the Bible says that Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. 
is Jesus standing in your life and you don't recognize it today. He's standing right on your shore. And the Bible says by the time they got to the shore and they were cold and wet, he had built a fire and he had dinner ready for them, breakfast ready for them. But they didn't recognize that all waited for them just onto the shore. And I want to tell you today, if you're discouraged, you're in a dead-end situation, I want you to see with your double-fisted faith that Christ is on your shore. You may not recognize him, but just row your boat towards him. Jump out of the boat. Peter ripped off his cloak and he dove in and he swam all the way to the shore. The rest of them, they brought this huge catch. And when they got there, Jesus warmed their soul. God wants to warm your heart. He wants to clothe you again. He wants to speak restoration into your life. He wants to give you a future and a hope today. Whether you recognize it or not, our Savior is standing next to you. Now we're going to stand in just a minute. And this song will start out with a chance for you to begin to pray, God, give me a double-fisted faith today. And as we sing this song, hear your hallelujah chorus in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of the dark night of your soul, in the midst of your death. Will you stand with me this morning? If you've never met Christ, I want you to reach out to him today. He will meet you as real. He is more real than the person standing next to you. And as we begin to see this, if you have had any of this in your heart that I've talked about today, I want you to reach out with a hand. And if you can, reach out with both hands and begin to believe for the Lord. Begin to believe for Him in your life. Begin to believe Jesus is big enough to do all things exceedingly abundantly, further than you could ever ask or think. Grab Him with both hands today as we sing. Go ahead, Sophia. Let's begin to worship the Lord.